Good afternoon, everybody. When I first met Nancy Carter Crump, she was the executive director of the Chesterfield Historical Society in Chesterfield. And for me, it was a great pleasure to finally meet the author of a book that I had already been using uh, in my own work for almost a decade, and that was the first edition of Hearthside Cooking. Now, along with decades of hands-on experience teaching and developing interpretive plans at Southern Historic House Kitchens, Nancy has published widely on cookery, diet in early America, and local history topics. She earned a BA in history at Virginia Commonwealth University and has continued her graduate work at the University of North Carolina in public history. She was a founder of the Culinary Historians of Virginia. She demonstrated hearth cookery at Colonial Williamsburg, and consulted with the cookery staff at the Herman Grima House in New Orleans. Just last month, Nancy and I cooked together to honor the memories of two famous Virginia cooks, Mary Randolph and Edna Lewis, uh, as part of the Virginia Women in History events sponsored by the Library of Virginia and the University of Richmond Culinary School. And between prepping and stirring and frying and laughing and... I'll admit, a, a couple of glasses of wine and uh, chopping. We, we had a really wonderful evening with 27 very enthusiastic students. And so when Nancy talks about Virginia foods and the cooks and the fires over which that food was prepared, we all yearn for a place at her dinner table. Please welcome Nancy Carter Crump. My aim is to get through this as quickly as possible so I can taste one of those syllabubs at Lenny Fix. <laughs> They're really good, I'm sure. I'm using borrowed glasses, so bear with me here. All right. Down on the nose? <laughs> All right, let's try it. We'll see. I may end up switching back to my own, but we'll give it a try anyway. Okay, <laughs> it's nice to be here. It really is. Um, from time immemorial, cooking has been done over an open fire. There were changes over time, obviously. The fire moved from an outdoor pit to an interior location in the center of a room where a hole in the roof provided at least some ventilation for the smoke. Later on, cooking was moved to a fireplace wall with an enclosed chimney and an iron bar that was called a lug pole was added in which pots for boiling food could be hung over the fire by various types of pot hooks. The lug pole was fixed above the fireplace opening, placed horizontally between the walls. Roasting was accomplished by suspending butchered meat above the flames, where it twisted and turned on string until the meat was done. Baking was accomplished in ashes or rudimentary uh, clay pots. Hang on here. That were placed in the coals. A major breakthrough occurred about 1700 when the swinging crane came into use. This was designed for convenience as well as safety. Using the fixed lug pole had necessitated stepping onto the hearth and leaning into the fireplace to suspend or remove heavy iron pots filled with food or water. 
At best, this was dangerous, and serious hearth-related injuries such as scalding were not uncommon. In fact, I have an aunt who died in the 1880s, I believe, from scalding, uh, water having spilled on her from a wood stove. So this is something my late aunts and uncles used to talk about now and then. As time went on, andirons with spits and different types of jacks provided better means for roasting. This illustration shows a clock jack, which is attached to the wall above the fireplace. You can see it there with the uh, ropes hanging down to connect to the spit. This is a driving wheel. When the jack was wound up, it turned the spit to ensure even roasting. This left the cook free to focus on the preparation of other foods, at least until she had to wind up the jack again. Built-in brick ovens or iron Dutch ovens for baking of the coals gave even further flexibility to early cooks. In wealthy English homes, upright grates made cooking even easier for those who were preparing food. Still, it was fireplace cooking. It was exhausting, dirty, dangerous, tricky work that continued with few changes for centuries. To me, it's really strange to realize how quickly all this was altered. In the space of about a 100 years, ancient methods of cooking went through drastic changes that ultimately revolutionized cooking techniques. It created a need for extensive new equipment and gave rise to an enormous food production industry. Changed to her attitudes as, as the art of cookery became more of a science during the late 19th century. I think it's interesting to note here that in the early days of colonization, the items for cookery recommended for immigrants coming to Virginia in the early 17th century were few, a total of seven, plus dishes, platters, and spoons. As a contrast, an 1880s cookbook lists some 364 items needed for what was then considered a properly equipped kitchen. My topic this evening focuses on Virginia's plantation cookery during the 18th and early 19th centuries and the changes that came about after the Civil War. I'll talk about hearthside cooking techniques and some of the recipes, or receipts to use the old term, used to prepare them. Consider, if you will, the bill of fare you might have been served at a Tidewater, Virginia plantation in April of 1750 for the first course. A bisque of pigeons, Westphalia ham and chickens, a dish of hashed carps, beef a la mode, green peas, a grand salad, almond florentines, a dish of custards. And then there's a second course. There might have been green geese and ducklings, buttered crabs with fried smelts, a dish of baby rabbits, syllabubs, buttered apple pie, marzipan, sorted fruits, and a pyramid of sweetmeats. Now here in Virginia, two courses were the norm, after which everything would have been cleared from the table, including the cloth. Fruits, nuts, and sweet wines would have finished off the meal, not to mention the guests. <laughs> By today's standards, of course, that menu, which is taken from um, Eliza Smith's A Complete Housewife, is mind-boggling, and that book was published in 1729. 
Consider further, though, how that meal was prepared. Remember that the entire meal would have been cooked over an open fire and on the hearth of a huge fireplace. The cook would have maneuvered coals to create the necessary—let me try again—the necessary cooking areas, stepping across or leaning over to reach into iron kettles simmering on a crane. The crane could swing out above the hearth for stirring, seasoning, or dishing up the finished food. The cook had to know the type of fire that was needed for techniques from roasting, broiling, boiling, and frying to cooking vegetables and baking breads, pies, cookies, and cakes, as well as the delicious puddings and sauces. She had to regulate the flames that would give her a clear, quick fire for roasting or a gentle one for making gravy. The bill of fare I just read you is based on English culinary practices. Here in the New World, those practices were integrated with other traditions, beginning with those of the Native American Indians, who were first encountered by Englishmen during the ill-fated Roanoke exploration of the late 16th century. Their records, together with other primary sources, such as these drawings and paintings by John White, provide valuable information about Native Americans and their food ways. Early English explorers were astounded by the availability of all kinds of food and other natural resources that could easily sustain permanent settlement in the New World. The soil is the most plentiful, sweet, fruitful, and wholesome of all the world, wrote Arthur Barlow, who captained the second of the vessels sent by Sir Walter Raleigh in 1584 to explore the vicinity we now know as the Albemarle region of North Carolina. Barlow described fat bucks, conies, hares, fish, the best of the world, as well as peas and diverse roots. He marveled at the variety of fruits and vegetables he saw, declaring, The earth bringeth forth all things in abundance, as in the first creation, without toil or labor. We have to remember that the descriptions left by Barlow and other early explorers were essentially promotional propaganda intended to stimulate uh, colonization. But the Englishmen were sincere in their enthusiasm for the area and all it offered to potential settlers. Thomas Harriet, who some scholars regard as the first Anglo-American anthropologist, is a major source for early Indian foodways. He was a brilliant young mathematician and accompanied the first English explorers to the Albemarle region. His book, A Brief and True Report of the Newfound Land in Virginia, I love that title, published in 1588, provides a first-hand look at the Indians' diet as well as their methods for preparing most of the foods they consumed. Their meat is maize, that's, he means corn, deer's flesh, or of some other beast or fish, he wrote. Their peas are far better than our English peas, prepared either by boiling them all to pieces into a broth or boiling them whole until they be soft and begin to break, as is used in England. According to Harriet, the Indians favored boiling their foods, and certainly this was the easiest procedure, combining all manner of vegetables, meats, and fish in a huge earthen pot, set over an open fire and replenished daily. They also roasted or broiled many of the foods they consumed, and these were all techniques familiar to their white observers. Unlike most of his English compatriots who saw themselves as superior, 
Harriet admired the Indians. He understood and could speak their language, and perhaps this gave him an awareness of the mysterious red men that the majority of his fellow explorers did not possess. He described their eating habits as sober, believing that the Native Americans lived longer because they do not oppress nature. In fact, Harriet felt that the English would do well to emulate the Indians' moderate habits. I would to God we would follow their example, he asserted, for we should be free from many kinds of diseases. In addition to studying the Indians' lifestyle, Harriet used his year in the New World to document the rich, easily available food supply. He made note of the variety of fruits and nuts, listed the wide array of seafood, and described corn of diverse colors, a grain, he wrote, that maketh very good bread of marvelous increase. The same abundance greeted the adventurers who established North America's first permanent English colony at Jamestown in May of 1607. As they explored their surroundings in the days after arriving in Virginia, the newcomers took stock of nature's bounty and the rich soil that could easily sustain a variety of crops. Despite the obvious advantages, England's second attempt to establish a colony in the New World nearly failed. From infighting among the early colonists to drought and disease, as well as a disastrous fire that destroyed virtually all of Jamestown buildings, a variety of reasons created problems that seemed to be insurmountable. By the spring of 1610, the Englishmen still remaining at Jamestown had decided to abandon the colony and return home. They were literally, and I love this story, they were on board ship headed down the James River when they sighted an incoming vessel bringing a new contingent of settlers to replenish the colony's population. Who would have thought? It's just great. They had been sent ahead by Virginia's new royal governor, Sir Thomas West. He was a strong disciplinarian who soon set the colony, quote, in good order. Needed foodstuffs and other provisions, along with firm controls established by West, helped to stabilize the colony over a period of several years. Acreage was allowed for farming, and the production of commodities brought monetary gain. The realization that Virginia's tobacco was marketable, was a marketable money crop, fueled the colony's development. Corn became the second most important crop in Virginia, not only for the colonists' subsistence, but as a cash crop exported to England and then to other countries. It provided a year-round stable that could be eaten fresh or dried for later use in baking and cooking. In fact, Virginian William Byrd called corn the most useful grain in the whole world. As the newcomers took to New World provender, squash and pumpkins, along with corn-related foods such as succotash, took their place beside familiar English fare. Indian corn replaced oats and barley and flatbreads baked in the ashes. But while necessity forced a colonial housewife to use native provisions, she clung to the English culinary traditions to which she'd been accustomed. The women who immigrated from England to North America carried that heritage with them. Treasured family receipts and cookbooks provided a link with their homeland. These early colonial women brought with them the seeds of fruits, vegetables, herbs, and flowers to recreate as closely as possible the gardens that were so much a part of their daily lives. 
As a historian, Robert Beverly wrote nearly a century later, a kitchen garden don't thrive better or faster in any part of the universe than in the lush Virginia Tidewater. They have all the culinary plants that grow in England and in greater perfection, he said. Supplies sent from England supplemented the foodstuffs now being raised by the colonists. Existing ships manifest document the arrival of plain fare that included oatmeal, salt, sugar, onions, beef and pork, rice and beer, along with more out-of-the-ordinary items that included white wine vinegar, dates, raisins, and almonds, as well as seasonings such as garlic, cloves, ginger, cinnamon, saffron, anise, cumin, and mace. Inbound cargoes included cooking implements, like a crane for the chimney in the cookroom, as well as spits and andirons, pot hangers and hooks, frying pans, scales, and so forth. With the arrival of the first Africans beginning scarcely a dozen years after the settling of Jamestown, a third important element was added to the incipient English-American Indian cuisine slowly taking shape in Virginia. Brought to America by European mariners, the captives were natives of Portuguese Angola and the west coast of Africa. In their own countries, the Africans raised a diversity of crops that included tobacco, and thus they were quickly pressed into service on behalf of the colony's growing agricultural industry. Africans coming into the colony brought food we now consider an integral part of southern cooking. This included black-eyed peas, yams, peanuts, and okra, along with seasonings that included hot pepper. All of this adapted easily to Virginia's rich soil. African women were capable and innovative cooks, proud of the culinary traditions handed down from their own forebears. They excelled in combining spices and other seasonings to create the exotic sauces of their culinary heritage. From the beginning, settlers from other countries had an opportunity to add their own touches to Virginia's developing cuisine. In the 1620s, for instance, Frenchmen were planting grapes at Jamestown. And in 1699, French Huguenots began to settle on the James River above what is now Richmond. They were quickly assimilated into Virginia society, further influencing the colony's foodways. In addition, immigrants from other European countries began to arrive. Virginia colonists were already familiar with Germanic cooking traditions, such as certain types of sausages, donuts, and other foods over time, all became part of Virginia's culinary fare. Before the middle of the 18th century, the fusion of these various culinary strains, the easy availability of local foods and seasonings, along with the ability of wealthy Virginia planters to import the best from other nations, resulted in a sumptuous, sophisticated cuisine called by one culinary historian an authentic American cuisine. That the food of the Virginia gentry was uniquely delicious and has, has been attested to by numerous visitors traveling in North America up through the second quarter of the 19th century. Secluded on remote plantations located along Virginia's waterways, planters eagerly welcomed visitors. They were hungry for social stimulation and vied with one another to entertain guests. Their wealth enabled the planters to import the finest goods they were able to set a table that could hold its own with those of the English gentry. 
The families, being all together on country seats, have a great plenty and variety of provisioning for their table, wrote Robert Beverly. Things that the country can't produce, they have constant supplies of them from England. The gentry pretend to have their visuals dressed and served up as nicely as at the best tables in London. Until the last few decades of the 20th century, prosperity has always been equated with hearty eating and a well-rounded figure. (laughs) Wealthy Virginians took great pride in providing more food than anyone could possibly eat, served up in the most elegant fashion. A continuing identification with England persisted throughout much of the 18th century, dominating the values of most tidewater planters. They emulated the social customs and habits of well-to-do English country gentlemen, part of which meant entertaining on a grand scale. Indeed, Virginians welcomed any excuse for a party. There were weddings, christenings, even funerals could be counted on as an occasion for socializing. There were balls and barbecues, picnics and housewarmings. In 1774, Philip Fithian, who was tutor to Robert Carter III's children, wrote John Peck, who was to succeed Fithian, up at Nominee Hall in Westmoreland County. This was the Carter's uh, plantation. Fithian was a disapproving Presbyterian, and he warned Peck what he could expect at Virginia's Anglican church services, where, he said, there were three grand divisions of time, doing business or consulting about the qualities of their horses prior to the service, listening to hastily delivered prayers and a short sermon during the service, and spending nearly an hour being invited by several different gentlemen home with them to dinner after the service. The balls, the fish feasts, the dancing schools, the christenings, the cockfights, the horse races, all were topics of conversation, according to Fithian, and all were reasons for social gatherings. Visitors to Virginia plantations could expect a continuous round of food and drink, as well as congenial companionship. We were merry till the evening, and then we drank a bowl of punch made of French brandy and oranges, William Byrd recorded. That early Virginians loved their food is evident, confirmed not only through reading their cookbooks, but by reading the diaries and letters they left behind. Many of these original sources provide us with a look at the past that goes far beyond the history books. And here I want to digress just long enough to give you two of my favorite examples. This one is from Robert Carter's diary for March 3rd, 1728. And I'm quoting him here. I was very much griped last night. Had eaten some shift bacon, turnip tops plentifully, a wing of a chicken, some clary pancake, some mutton, drank several glasses Madeira wine, one glass claret, was in great pain. (laughs) And this is from John Page of Rosewell in Gloucester County, who was a close friend of Thomas Jefferson's, I'm sure all of you know. He wrote to his friend, St. George Tucker of Williamsburg, that he had been windbound at a neighboring plantation in February of 1777. This was less than a year after the Declaration of Independence had been signed. While there, Page wrote, a weakness of the flesh gave way to the powerful temptation of a bushel of fine oysters, which, when we had fairly eaten with a good proportion of hoe cake and butter, we were so enlivened and our spirits so raised that we forgot the cares of America and were as happy as lords. 
Even in the hottest weather, copious amounts of food were presented at Virginia Gentry's tables, carefully balanced to please the eye. In the tidewater, wealth enabled the Virginia aristocracy to serve elaborate dinners with costly linens, silver plate, and china displayed on fashionable mahogany tables. The means by which this food was prepared is best shown through the instructions given in early cookbooks, both published and in manuscript form. I'll begin with roasting, a popular method for cooking meat. We look first at Hannah Glass, who is shown in this conjectural drawing. They have no idea how Hannah really looked. She was an 18, in fact, for a long time, they weren't even sure it was a woman that had written uh, her books. She was an 18th century cookbook writer who could be called the Julia Child of her day. She tells her reader that the fire should be ordered according to what is to be cooked. And I'm quoting Mrs. Glass here. If anything very little or thin, then a pretty little brisk fire, that it may be done quick and nice. If a very large joint, then be sure a good fire be laid. Let it be clear at the bottom. And when your meat is half done, move the dripping pan and the spit a little from the fire and stir it up a good brisk fire, for according to the goodness of it, she means the fire, your meat will be done sooner or later. That's confusing, to say the least. Eliza Leslie, an important 19th century cookbook writer from Philadelphia, whose works were used here in Virginia, helps clarify what Hannah Glass is saying. Leslie tells a reader that a roasting fire should be large, steady, and bright, with plenty of fine hot coals at the bottom. She gives instructions for replenishing the fire by clearing away the ashes, bringing forward the hot coals, and putting fresh fuel on at the back of the fire. What glass means by the meat being done sooner or later is also clarified by Leslie. She advises 20 minutes to each pound of meat, but admits that this rule, like most others, admits of exceptions according to the circumstances. And those circumstances include how people like their meat done, just as in today, do they want it rare or well-cooked? and the time of year that the meat is being roasted. Amelia Simmons calls for 15 minutes a pound for, for beef, but explains that tender beef will take less time, while old, tough beef will take much longer. Glass provides directions for roasting everything from mutton to poultry. To roast a pig, for instance, the fire must be brisker at the ends than in the middle, an effect which be, be, can be achieved, she says, by hanging a flat iron in the middle of the, of the uh, grate. And how do you know when the pig is done? The best way, says Mrs. Glass, to judge is when the eyes drop out and the skin grows very hard. Elizabeth Raffled is another well-known cookbook writer of the period, and she adds her comments. She says, time, distance, Basting often in a clear fire is the best method I can prescribe for roasting meat to perfection. When the steam draws near the fire, it is a sign of it being enough. And when you hear the word enough, they mean done, finished, cooked. Directions for boiling, grilling, baking, and frying all types of meat are found in early cookbooks, although not all were as detailed as Mrs. Glass's. One of her contemporaries, Martha Bradley, dismissed frying saying it was a coarse and greasy kind of cookery. She would have fitted right in with current attitudes. Now what about vegetables? 
There's been a common misconception that they were rarely eaten, and if they were at all, had been cooked to a gray, sodden mass. And again, early cookbooks tell a different story. Glass, Raffold, and other food writers of the period provide numerous receipts for vegetables that illustrate their importance, as well as the mode of preparation. Glass's general instructions for cooking them close with an admonition that would delight any 21st century chef. She writes, Most people spoil garden things by overboiling them. All things that are green should have a little Christmas, for if they're overboiled, they neither have any sweetness or beauty. Her directions for spinach instruct the cook to add no water after the spinach has been washed. Instead, she says to cover the pan and shake it over the fire. And as soon as you find the greens are shrunk and and fallen to the bottom, and that the liquor, she means the juice, which comes out of them boils up, they are enough. Other vegetables are treated with equal care. About 15 minutes will do them, she says, of whole cauliflower. And she warns that if asparagus are boiled too much, you lose both color and taste. As the 19th century unfolded, Mary Randolph, whose 1824 cookbook, The Virginia Housewife, is considered to be the first regional cookbook in America, held to the same traditions, as did other early 19th century food writers. Randolph's directions for asparagus caution that great care must be taken to watch the exact time of their becoming tender. Take them just at that instant, and they will have their true flavor and color. A minute or two more boiling destroys birth, both. Eliza Leslie, whose first cookbook was published in 1827, was another perceptive cook. She informed her readers that when vegetables are done, they should be carefully drained, or they'll be washy all through and leave puddles of discolored water in the bottom of the dish, to the disgust of the company and the discredit of the cook. She also tells her followers that every sort of vegetable is infinitely best when fresh from the garden, gathered as short a time as possible before it's, it is cooked. Michelle Obama really should see this her book, I think. Other directions Miss Leslie gives still apply. Use but very little salt in cooking vegetables, she writes, and certainly in today's health-conscious age that still applies. Herbs and spices were combined to produce mouth-watering fare. One recipe I found for savory meat, for instance, called for a little sage, pepper, allspice, pennyroyal, sweet basil, pot marjoram, and salt. It would have made for a tasty dish. Early cooks knew their seasonings, and the most exotic combinations could be found. Herbs, then, were a far broader term than is used today and included many salad greens. One of the most popular books of the day, Aceteria, was written in 1699 by the Englishman John Evelyn to extol the virtues of herbs and salads. He sheds a light on their importance to our forefathers. Mint, he says, is friendly to the weak stomach. Fennel expels wind, while sage has so many wonderful properties that the use of it is said to render man immortal. Mr. Evelyn detailed the proper way to make a salad, saying that those who eat only fish are heavy, dull, unactive, and much more stupid. Plant eaters, on the other hand, are more acute, subtle, and of deeper penetration. Seasonings other than herbs included rose water and orange flower water, which began to be replaced by vanilla during the mid-19th century. 
Ketchups were popular, but they were not the thick, gooey tomato substance we think of today. Used to season everything from soups to sauces. Early ketchups were made from such things as oysters, lemons, grapes, mushrooms, and walnuts, and they imported a heady flavor to many dishes. Another aspect of cooking that should be mentioned is baking. Here again, hearth cooks possess skills beyond our 21st century imaginations. From the simplest procedures by which corn, water, and salt were patted by hand into cakes to be directly in the ashes, to pancakes and more elaborate breads, baking was one of the most important aspects of cookery. Today we rarely stop to consider just how formidable a task bread making was. Leavening agents were natural ones, primarily liquid yeast or well-beaten eggs. Recipes for yeast occupy a large part of bread-making sections excuse me, in early cookbooks. Commercial yeast was not available until 1868. Cooks kept a liquid starter on hand, made with ingredients that included hops, potatoes, sugar, flour, and water. Combined with more flour to make a sponge, the dough was set to rise hours ahead of the time it was to be baked. Kneading was, and still is, a major part of the process, and its importance was stressed. Eliza Leslie, for instance, noted that the goodness of the bread depends much on the kneading. The actual baking was done in Dutch ovens or brick ovens, usually built beside the kitchen fireplace. A thorough knowledge of the process was vital. A fire was started in the brick oven about two hours prior to putting in the loaves. Instructions were specific on everything from the size and type of wood needed to the proper oven temperature. To quote Miss Leslie again, if you can hold your hand within the mouth of the stove as long as you can distinctly count 20, the heat is about right. And I've scorched my arm, the hairs on my arms more than once testing this. My experience with brick oven baking is very limited, I'm sorry to say. So I've relied more on the trustworthy stand-by the Dutch oven for any baking I do. And again, Eliza Leslie comes to the recipe, to the rescue. She's one of several uh, cooks who provides direction for Dutch oven baking. She advises her reader to preheat both the container and the lid by setting them in front of the fire, covering the inside of the bottom with sand or ashes to temper their heat before putting in the prepared bread dough. Once filled and covered, the oven could be suspended from the crane to hang over the fire or set on coals to bake in a corner of the hearth. Soft breads such as muffins could be baked on a griddle hung on the crane. And simplest of all was the ancient method known to Indians, whites and blacks alike, whereby flat breads were baked before the fire or on a warm hearth, covered with ashes or placed in cabbage leaves or corn husks and covered over with coals. Whatever the method, providing delectable breads was essential. Early cookbooks went far beyond those we know today. They were really encyclopedias of household knowledge, not only containing receipts for food and drink, but for everything from curing an illness to dyeing fabrics. Examining these old books, both published and in manuscript form, dispel any notion that food in the early days was boring and overcooked. Handwritten manuscript cookbooks were passed down from mother to daughter to become treasured family heirlooms. 
The writer's personalities are often revealed through their cookbooks, such as a lengthy one begun by a young Petersburg woman in the 1830s. Her name is Isabella Dunlop, and her cookbook is at the Library of Virginia. She sometimes writes in something of a stream of consciousness, talking about the instruction she has gathered from people, including slaves, which is very rare. She quotes them along with her own commentary. While researching at the Southern Historical Collection, I found a charming 1852 manuscript cookbook that had been combined by Lancelot Minor Blackford, a 15-year-old boy from Lynchburg. This has been interesting to me because a 15-year-old boy in 1852 wrote this thing. I think it should be published. It is filled with recipes along with drawings and whimsical sayings, such as this ode to roast pig, writing to eulogize one of the South's best-loved dishes. It begins, O pig, or rather little pork once pig, smoking so daintily upon the table, making each gazer long that he were able to eat thee, every limb, both small and big. No more in squeaking fight or grunting jog there runced about the barnyard. And this goes on for several more lines. As I said earlier, letters, diaries, and other primary sources such as wills and inventories also help in looking at old food ways. Henry Bernard, for instance, was a young Connecticut Yankee who made an extended visit to Virginia, <clears throat> excuse me, and other southern states in 1833. His letters are valuable for his detailed descriptions of life in the antebellum South. To give you an example, let me quote his description of a dinner Bernard enjoyed with Governor James Barber and his family at Barbersville. This, I'm sure you all are familiar with this. They're farm up in Orange County. And I'm quoting Bernard. The dinner was in true Virginia style, he wrote. At one end was a large urn of soup, at the other a large fine ham, on each side a roast pig, a boiled mutton, and fried chicken. He thought this was the greatest luxury in the world, besides jellies, potatoes, beets, and so forth. At each end of the table stood a bottle of the finest and oldest Madeira I ever tasted, the dessert was pudding, cherry pie, and strawberries, cream and sugar. Behind the splendid presentation described by Henry Bernard and numerous other visitors to Virginia in the 18th and 19th centuries stood the mistress of the house. She planned and managed the system that was needed to carry out such a display. Trained from girlhood to supervise a household that included a large staff of servants, she had organizational skills we women of today would be hard put to match. Her responsibilities were enormous, and her knowledge was formidable. With few exceptions, actual preparation of the meals was carried out by black servants, usually women. They, too, were possessed of far more knowledge than we today realize. As we go into our modern kitchens, equipped with food processors and microwaves. Consider for a moment the conditions under which these slaves prepared food. Cooking at open fires in enormous fireplaces and directed by their mistresses, these black slaves turned out mouth-watering fare that would rival any we know today. The cook's job was a back-breaking effort. Up before dawn to establish the fire which had been banked the previous night, she faced hours of preparation before the mid-afternoon dinner could be served. To make a cake, for instance, she was required to pulverize sugar 
at that time and came at Lowe's or Cone's. She had to grind spices, free the flour from possible bugs, beat egg yolks with straw rods. The modern egg beater didn't come along until, was not widely available anyway, until the 1880s. The directions are until the eggs become thick and smooth like boiled custard and so on. While the heavy jobs were relegated to the cook, women, <clears throat> the mistress of the house, directed the operation. It was she who planned the menus, discussing them with the cook, then doling out the necessary supplies, most of which were kept under lock and key. In 1820s Petersburg, for instance, Mary Simpson wrote a letter to her sister in London describing her typical day. Take a sketch of my system, she wrote. After breakfast, my first steps are bent toward the dairy in which are deposited our flour, meat, potatoes, and so forth. I next repair to the smokehouse to give out whatever may be wanted in the ham, tongue, or corned beef way. I then go to the kitchen and there fully arrange the eating part of the day. Aristocratic women usually had a specialty or two they, they prepared themselves. Preserving peaches or making uh, special desserts were among them, such as the syllabubs you tasted earlier. This was noted by uh, David Hunter Strother, who was also known under his pseudonym, Port Cran. Strother, although he was a native Virginian, sided and served with the Union during the war between the states. Writing in 1857, he described a southern housewife who at only five and twenty was already a famous housekeeper. Everything goes on like clockwork under her management, wrote Strother, and she not unfrequently condescends to do up the more elegant branches of this department with her own hands. Indeed, a thorough knowledge of housewifery in all its branches was expected of upper-class women, and part of that meant a familiarity with cooking. The labor-intensive uh, aspects, however, grinding, chopping, pounding, kneading, were handled by the cook. Working within an environment of hot, smoky kitchens with open windows, there's a 19th century cookbook advises that in summer try to churn early in the morning as fewer flies are swarming. Without the convenience we take for granted today, the mistress of the house and her slave loaded the table with a variety of foods prepared and served in the best taste of the times. It's been interesting for me to speculate on the relationship between these two disparate women. While separated by class, color, and the ever-present knowledge that one of them was bound to the other, necessity brought them together in something of symbiotic existence. One cannot help but wonder how the cook felt as she turned out these prodigious meals. Did she resent the woman who, who pushed her culinary skills to the limit? Or was she justifiably proud of her own accomplishments? We know that a good cook was prized above other servants. Black cooks brought high prices on the slave market. In 1849, for instance, Ella Noland, up in Loudoun County, wrote to her sister about the retention of a slave woman during the dispersal of a family estate. She's a fine cook, wrote Mrs. Noland, and there were a great many wealthy gentlemen wanting her. If she had been put up to the highest bidder, such bidding never would have been known in this part of the world. In 1810, St. George Tucker complained about the price of a cook he wanted to buy for his daughter, Frances. The price appears, appears to me to be very exorbitant. 
I had almost said beyond all bounds, he explained, exclaimed. Nevertheless, Tucker wanted Francis to have a cook as fine as his own. Soon after, he underwrote the cost, buying the slave, he said, because he wanted to make his daughter happy. I wonder how the slave felt about all this. Certainly cooks were aware of their position, and this shows up in many sources, including fictionalized accounts of the period. Dinah, a cook in Uncle Tom's cabin, for instance, was the head cook and principal of all rule and authority in the kitchen department. No possible amount of talent or authority or explanation could ever make her believe that any other was better than her own. Dinah ruled supreme. Port Crown described Dilly, the cook, whose, and I'm quoting, whose ladle is as a royal scepter in her hands, who has grown sleek and fat on the steam of her own genius, who brazens her mistress, boxes her scullions, and scalds the dogs. She's a perfect shezar, said Cran. The first step toward modernization appeared in print in 1796, when a chemical leavening agent called pearl ash was listed as an ingredient in Amelia Simmons's book, American Cookery. Pearl ash was a popular name given to potassium carbonate, an alkaline cont- um, obtained through the leaching of wood ash. This was combined with sour milk or vinegar, and it created a quick method for making dough or cakes rise. Over time, pearl ash came to be called saleratus, an early form of baking powder. Baking soda, excuse me. Cooks began combining it with cream of tartar to create a necessary alkaline acidic balance. And ultimately, this gave rise, no pun intended here, to baking powder, commercially produced for the first time in 1856. The reflector oven, also called a tin kitchen, was another new device which appeared in the late 18th century. An American invention made of tin, it was shaped like a cylinder cut in half and set on short legs. Outfitted with a spit, the cut side faces the fire, and the heat reflects at the back of the cylinder, creates an ideal flexible means for roasting birds and smaller cuts of meat. The oven can be um, repositioned on the hearth, closer to the fire, or moved away from it as needed. A hinged door at the back, at the rounded end of the oven, gives the cook easy access to the food being roasted. It allows the cook to test the heat of the fire, base the meat, and finally to determine whether or not the food is done. The tin kitchen became a convenient auxiliary or substitute for roasting as it was easily moved and accessible to the cook and it was in use at least through the 19th century, found not only with open hearths, but also with iron stoves to provide an alternative method of roasting meat. The growth of industry in America in the early 19th century brought amazing changes, and nowhere is this more evident than in the kitchen, where cooking processes were forever altered. With the development of the wood stove, which over time led to the modern ranges we know today, New cooking techniques and approaches evolved. This was not a quick or an easy transition. For much of the period, while stoves were being introduced, one finds that hearth cookery continued to be the norm in many families, particularly here in the South. One would think that with the enormous difficulties encountered in hearth cooking, 
cooks would have been quick to embrace the new technology, but such was not generally the case. In the South, the transition took even longer, and in rural areas, one finds hearth cooking going on even up into the early uh, 1900s. According to an architectural historian at Colonial Williamsburg, only about one-third of the households in southern towns had cook stoves, even as late as the 1850s. He confirmed my theory that the South was much slower to employ the gains industrialization had brought. In fact, he said that lag time for urbanization in Virginia was as long as 50 years. While Virginia cities were trying to urbanize some during that time, the citizens themselves were unwilling to do so. While hearth cooking was inconvenient, uncomfortable, and fraught with danger, it was still familiar and therefore easy. I cannot imagine that if I, who more than likely would have been comfortable with the old style, had been confronted with an iron monster equipped with the pipes, boilers, and newfangled gadgets, I I would have tucked up my skirts and gone back to the fireplace. To teach a slave cook how to prepare food on a newfangled stove in the years before the Civil War, her mistress would first have had to learn the techniques herself. More than likely, it was easier to go on in the old way. After all, she wasn't the one who had to do the cooking. She wasn't involved with the inconveniences of fireplace cooking. Although stoves began to appear in Virginia's city inventories as early as 1829, and I'm referring to Petersburg here, it was not until after the Civil War that cook stoves became more accepted in the South. One of the reasons is obvious. Was slavery abolished, Southern women were forced to learn the, the uh, tough jobs that had formerly been handled by their slaves. Malvina Gist of South Carolina, for instance, wrote shortly before the war ended that she wished she'd been taught to cook instead of how to play the piano. In a July 1865 letter written just over three months after the war had ended, an unidentified woman in Lynchburg described her situation. It seems strange not having any of those around us with whom I have grown up, she wrote, referring to the family slaves who had left the household. All of our servants are gone, and I do miss them greatly. Our cook left without a word, and her place I never expect to have filled. I do miss her elegant bread. The woman did her best to be cheerful about the changes she faced, saying that she was determined to have a nice dinner. As we had nobody who knew anything about cooking, I went regularly into the kitchen, and my my dinner was worthy of the occasion. I wish you could have seen it, she exclaimed. You would have thought I had studied the Virginia housewife to some purpose, and we had a merry day of it. And here she's referring to Mary Randolph, the Virginia housewife. While families struggled to learn the jobs that had formerly been assigned to their slaves, William Willis Blackford, he's the uh, older brother of Lancelot Blackford, whose pig poem I quoted a little while ago, uh, who had been Jeb Stewart's chief engineer, wrote his mother detailing his family's difficulties. Our troubles in the servant line are continuous and vexatious, he said. Lizzie, she was their 10-year-old daughter, is become a great assistance to her mother and does a good deal of the housekeeping. She has quite a talent for cooking, and we encourage her in such things as much as possible. Uh, In reading these letters further, uh, 
the mother, Mr. Blackford's mother, uh, wife, excuse me, Mary, died just a few weeks after this letter was written in childbirth. She had had something like ten children in about eight and a half, nine years of marriage. Quick, quick, quick. Poor woman. Economics, of course, also played a role in the, in the post-war period and was another reason women in the South were slower to furnish their kitchens with iron stoves and the accompanying tools that were needed. The canning process, which demands lengthy boiling, had been introduced in the North in the 19th century and became increasingly popular as the century wore on. The process made all kinds of food readily available to any household, and a concern with nutrition and health led to the mechanization of cooking techniques. While canning was touted as a modern method for preserving food, especially in the last quarter of the 19th century, it tended to yield up a tasteless, mushy product. Cooks got used to overboiling foods, and over time the practice led ultimately to overcooking all vegetables and fruits, as shown through the cookbooks. While necessary for sterile canning, it meant the loss of flavor as well as style. And this change shows clearly in the new cookbooks that were published in the latter part of the 19th century. Where Hannah Glass and her, her soulmates instructed that vegetables should be cooked quickly, you'll remember that her directions for cooking spinach say that overboiling will mean a loss of sweetness and beauty. Marion Harland, one of the most popular cookbook writers of the, of the late 19th century and a Virginian to boot, instructed her readers to put spinach into already boiling water to cook for 15 to 20 minutes. The result was less than appetizing, Popeye notwithstanding, and a quantum leak backwards. I was astonished to read in another cookbook of the period, Housekeeping in Old Virginia, that cauliflower should boil for two hours. You know, I didn't like any of that stuff growing up, and I know why now. My mother followed the old traditions, or the 19th century traditions, I should say. Commercial products such as bottled sauces appeared on the market, contributing to the decline in the imaginative and individualistic seasons and sauces formerly produced at home. It was no longer necessary to make the delicious ketchups I mentioned earlier, and as they disappeared from the recipe books, they faded from memory. This, I have to say, was a real eye-opener for me when I first began doing food research. Uh, I was reading recipes, and they would call for ketchup. And I would think, ketchup, tomato ketchup in this recipe? And it was only as I began to research more, read more, had a chance to examine so many different cookbooks that I realized all the wonderful things, all the wonderful types of ketchups that could be made. And you'll find walnut ketchup and mushroom ketchup and lemon ketchup in my book. As these sauces faded away, they disappeared from memory. Bombarded with advertising for every imaginable product, as seen in these few examples, women had to make bewildering choices. This could not have been easy for housewives already trying to cope with the new hurry-up changes industrialization had brought. When we think about the slow process that had continued over centuries, one realizes that the psychological impact must have been enormous, particularly in the South, where we continued to look back with longing at a romanticized, never-to-be-forgotten past. 
Traditions died hard in Cavalier land, as is clear from an 1866 letter written by James M. Wilcox in Charles City County to his daughter. Mr. Wilcox wrote, The stove has been received. My cook prefers the open fireplace where she can burn half a quart of wood per day and roast herself to her own satisfaction. In Virginia and other parts of the South, the devastation caused by the Civil War contributed to the decline of fine cooking. Financial losses maintained by the wealthy, (coughs) excuse me, sustained by the wealthy, curbed the lavish hospitality for which Virginians was famous. Without the large staff of black servants needed, it was no longer possible to entertain in the grand manner of old. A 19th century Virginia author, George Bagby, who was a proponent of the lost cause, eulogized the old days, the princely hospitality of the gentle-born families, as he described the past, was no more. Despite reluctance to leave off the old ways entirely, they yielded at last to modern convenience. The way of life that existed in the years before industrialization and war is gone forever, But the study of culinary history enables one to look at the past from a different perspective. For me, food is a common denominator that links us across time. And with the current emphasis on recreating the past, many of us look to old receipts and cooking traditions. Who knows? Perhaps at times you're like many of us, who along with Mr. Wilcox's cook, would prefer the joy of the fire where we could burn a quart of wood a day and roast ourselves to our own satisfaction. (laughs) Thank you. I I think we have time for some questions, particularly if I could have a syllabub. That was... (laughs) Yes, uh, referred to as spoon bread. The two in my book are spoon bread. I'm sorry. I have one in my book that is from two 19th century sources. Uh, I have seen batter bread recipes, but I did not use them in the book. All right. What else? I'm not sure. Lenny, can you answer that question? Are you saying that we... No. It may have been singular, his, his, uh, his fondness for macaroni, but anchovies, olives, olive oil, uh, those kinds of things, I think were fairly common among the elite. From the elite, yeah. By the, say, the de- first decade of the 19th century. Okay. Thank you for coming. That was...